You think you have life figured out? I never feel like I got life figured out. Men have to figure out what they have to do. If you really have an obsession to figure it out, you will figure it out. Figure out who you are, don't apologize for who you are, and then become even greater than you naturally are at what you are. Yo, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the FitFo Podcast, where I have conversations with amazing moms, dads, and thought leaders of all different industries, and hopes to help me figure out just how to become the father that I want to be for my two young girls. In this episode, I sit down with the ever-insightful Hannah Frankman, or Rebel Educator, as some of you may know her on Twitter or X, as we have an engaging conversation that's sure to stir the minds of parents, educators, and anyone interested in alternative education. Uh, on top of that, we also talk about the Objective Standard Institute. She's running a How to Build a Social Media Brand starting on February 5th, so highly recommend checking it out. I will definitely be in attendance, and uh, what she's been able to do on X with her Rebel Educator uh, account has been nothing short of impressive. So I uh, hope you guys enjoy this episode as we talk about different educational approaches from Montessori to public school the topic of unschooling that seems to be coming up more often now. So here we go with Hannah Frankman. All right. Well, welcome to the FitFo podcast, Hannah Frankman. How are you today? I am wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. How are you? Oh, you know, it's a great day. Uh, pretty fortunate. Just got done this weekend going to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Have you ever been? I have not been. Okay, so it was a really cool spot. But anyways, I've got a two and a four-year-old. So just to watch their faces, like be able to explore uh, the sea creatures and you know everything that they've got going on with the, the marine bio life, it was awesome. So came off a good weekend, a holiday, so can't complain. That's amazing. I think, I don't think that there's anything quite as magical as watching children discover the world because you get to see, like you, you kind of remember when you were a child and you saw something like, a manatee or whatever, a stingray or whatever for the first time. And it's so exciting when you're a little kid, but then it just becomes normal and you forget. And then when you watch little kids again, re, they, they're experiencing it for the first time. You get to re-experience it with new eyes. I think that's just the best. Oh, it really is. It like took me back because I grew up going there as a kid. I'm from Northern California. So, you know, that was kind of our one of our vacation places that we'd go like a couple of times throughout my childhood. And just like to pet the, the manta rays or the stingrays <laughs> or whatever they're called. Uh, I remember that it was not as big as I remember as a child. But, uh, you know, it was just fun to, to watch their curiosity blossom and just the little things that you just take for granted. And you just think is just part of life. And they're so just naturally uh, inquisitive about it. So, Part of the things that I want to discuss with you today is that curiosity. Uh, how do we help, uh, you know, create it, foster it, create an environment welcoming it? Uh, as you know, a dad, I've got a lot of things to learn, and so really excited to talk to you about education. Obviously, an area that seems like you're very, very well versed, and you know, you know, plenty about. Uh, and also just tips uh, how I can continue to improve to be a father. So uh, I thought a fun place to start, though, would be a post that I just saw both of us recently liked uh, by a mutual connection of ours, Matt Bedreau. Uh, and it talked about your job as a parent is to work yourself out of a job, uh, but not out of a relationship. And I thought that was just a, a really fascinating uh, comment. And I'm curious to just start with your perspective on that. What, what did you take away or what did you mean by that when you liked it? 
I mean, well, I should clarify that not everything I like on Twitter is an endorsement, just for the record for people who are listening. <laughs> That's a very good point. Um, but, uh, but I did agree with this take. I, th- I think I retweeted it because I do, I do think this is an important point that, you know, I, I, think, I think both pieces of this are really important things to kind of hold at the core of how you think about raising and educating children and they're both things that you have to do intentionally in order to do them well. The, the sort of status quo default path is not necessarily catering to either of these things. But, you know, your job as a parent is to work yourself out of a job. The whole point is for your child to not need you anymore. You start with this incredibly dependent child, an infant that, you know, if you leave it alone, it will die. It cannot sustain itself in any capacity and you end up over the course of 18 years you end up with a young adult who's fully capable of going out into the world and navigating all of the intricacies and the nuances of it and somewhere along the way and ideally it's you know a continual progression from infancy all the way through to adulthood you are making yourself less and less necessary that's the entire point is you're showing your child how to do all of these life things that they're encountering over the course of their first 18 years. And each time you teach them how to do something new, they build a capacity and there's one less thing that they require you for. And I think, you know, we kind of, we have this weird, there's this weird phenomenon in how we do education in, in America, in, in the West, in the modern world in general, where we sort of keep our children more dependent than they need to be for much of their mm-hmm. childhood. We put them inside of structures that cause them to rely on, you know, an adult, an authority figure for everything. And then they graduate when they turn 18. And it's like, well, you know, now you're an adult and you get to do all of this yourself. And, you know, the kids are frustrated and they feel incompetent and they're confused because we haven't properly worked ourselves out of a job. We've, you know, made ourselves so, well, you know, we're setting all the structure, we're setting all of the rules, not just as parents, but as educators, even more so as educators, I think, where, you know, you have this schooling structure where a child is beholden to the rules and structures imposed on them by an adult all the way until they turn 18 and then they just sort of get dumped out into the real world and it's like well you know possibilities are infinite now have fun navigating that (laughs) which is which is really unfair i think and and really it it very poorly equips a child to be prepared to live in the and function in the adult world so I think it's really important for a parent to think about the work that they're doing is like slowly making themselves irrelevant in the early stages. Like eventually your child doesn't need you anymore to feed themselves. They don't need you anymore to use the bathroom. Eventually they don't need you anymore to do their addition homework. Eventually they don't need you anymore to like make them food at all because they've learned how to navigate the kitchen and they can make themselves dinner. Eventually they don't need you anymore to drive them places. Eventually they don't need you anymore to understand how to do their taxes. Like you're working them through all of these steps. But I also think that, you know, a lot of parents, it's very easy to structure your relationship as a parent in a way that strains your relationship with your child. And I'm going to speak in, you know, very dramatic, broad brush strokes here because interpersonal relationships are infinitely complicated. Mm, um, totally. But I think this nuance of like, you're, you're not trying to work yourself out of a job. You're not trying to, or I'm sorry, you're not trying to work yourself out of a relationship. You're not trying to, you know, 
impede your child's desire to want to talk to you and want to interact with you, the goal at the end of the 18 years is to have an adult who is excited to come home and visit and excited to talk to you and still comes to you for advice and still comes to you as a sounding board because they want to talk about things. I just think that's a really helpful North Star in thinking about how you want to structure the relationship with your kid because that's the thing that lasts forever. You're not always going to be an authority figure to them, but you are always going to have a relationship mm. with them. So what do you want it to be like? Oh, man, that's so top of mind right now. And it's it's honestly kind of like a heavy topic too when you think about it because you know every little decision that you make now especially at the early stages uh, of parenthood you know how is that going to have a ripple effect years down the road and the relationship that you have with your kids is something that's like you get one shot at this like, you need to do it right and if you do it right then they're going to love you forever but there's a chance that you know every little decision that you make might not go in the way that you planned and that's okay but at least if you lead with love and respect and, and hope that you're doing the right thing for them at every decision that you make, uh, you'll build the right level of relationship. But it, it's tough. And, you know, you try to stick to these principles and the way that you want to approach parenting. Um, but at the end of the day, when you're here, you want to pull it out and they're not listening and you're going through the terrible twos and they're frustrated. It's like, how do you make sure that you don't respond in a way that is going to leave a lasting impression because those memories get rooted uh, as those core memories deeper than you really know. And for me, that's, uh, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Part of why I wanted to have you on today. And I didn't even let you introduce yourself, but tell me a little bit about your background. Like, how did you get to being this rebel educator that we'll talk a little bit more about? <laughs> I, I've followed you and man, I feel like I've, I, I've known your voice for a while now, but it's great to be able to see you in person. Uh, I actually got lucky to see one of your tweets. And uh, that same day, we got introduced via email. So it was just really odd. And I, I do believe in fate and how things are supposed to be. Uh, but I'd love to give the audience some context. Yeah, so... I am a product of a lot of the things that I talk about. Um, so I grew up homeschooled. I skipped college to go work for a startup apprenticeship program that was helping young people go work in the business world instead of going to business school. And I kind of like hacked the program instead of going through the program. I worked for the program and learned by like supporting everybody going through the program about this like meta idea of how to be successful without college. Um, I've been working in alternative education basically ever since I graduated from high school. I did some, I mean, I've done, I've done all kinds of things. I did some like taught homeschool classes really early on after I graduated. I worked for the startup apprenticeship program for a long time. Um, I got into doing like, sorry, I started writing about my own experience and the work that I was doing, which eventually snowballed into the like fairly like large scale commentary work that I now do across Twitter and across, you know, I have a podcast where I interview people working in the space and I talk about this stuff on a weekly basis. Um, and I've also done work with a few different types of schools, everything from like Montessori schools to like more innovative sort of niche programs. Um, so I've kind of, I mean, really, Honestly, there's like I've, I've basically been in this world since I was like three <laughs> and crazy. ended up working in it kind of entirely by accident. But the more I started just like following the rabbit trails of things I found interesting and the more I started talking about this, the more I realized, one, I find alternative education endlessly fascinating. Two, I feel like I got incredibly lucky by the path that I got to walk. And so mm. I feel really motivated to talk about it because I want to help other families also feel empowered to do these things that look very scary from the outside, but once you're in it are actually like very accessible and very easy. 
Um, and three, I don't think there's anything I could be doing that feels more important to me because kids are the future mm. of everything. And I feel like I just have a very strong maternal instinct towards children in general. I'm like, school sucks and that's really unfair for these poor kids and I want to help as many of them as possible get out of the system and find something better. But also, you know, in any other arena of life, you can completely win. You can build a utopia in any field or on any front. But if you don't raise the children well, the people who come forward to inherit what you have built will destroy it again or they won't appreciate it or they won't know how to use it. And so, like, you know, the kids, the kids are the center of everything. So the deeper I got into this world, the more I felt like, wow, okay, there's, there's really a lot to do here. So now I think I'm just sort of permanently in the education space. Well, I want to say thank you for what you are doing, because it is very impactful, even from afar, to be able to, you know, just get different perspective and concepts. And, you know, it's it's intimidating. You know, we got a four-year-old and we're thinking about what do we do next? She's at a Montessori school and we love it. It's been an incredible experience. Um, but now it's, you know, as she gets older do we do the traditional route? You know, we moved to this area at first because the area is nines and tens for the public school, right? And so, okay, that feels safe. It's obviously proven. It's been around forever. So let's go that route. And now the more that we continue to think about this whole parenting thing, you know, I'm in the business world, I've been studying a lot about like OKRs and, and it's kind of a weird way to put parenting is like thinking in terms of like metrics and key results. But I think aspirational in particular. And I think this is one of the podcasts that I was listening to you about. It's, you know, parenting isn't just something that you want to be practical about, or you don't want to just do the easiest, most convenient route. It's like, why don't you strive for it to be aspirational, to give them the best education system they could ever experience. You want it to be a bonus and exciting part of their day that they wake up and go to. And, and can I feel that way that I'm excited to create an environment that they get to do every day? Or am I just checking the box to send them to a place that at least it worked pretty well for me. And that's not what I want to be able to do. So um, the concept of homeschooling, unschooling, and you know, other alternative forms of education, definitely the area I wanted to talk about with you. But maybe for people that haven't heard that term, how would you even differentiate homeschooling versus unschooling versus traditional? How do you break down the three? Yeah, so homeschooling i would classify unschooling as a subcategory of homeschooling because homeschooling sort of like it, from a legal context like it's all kind of the same thing um, okay so homeschooling is basically like you've, you've pulled your kids out of the public school system um, or a private school or wherever they were like whatever brick and mortar school they were traditionally attending with teachers and like you know some type of like hierarchical structure and you know some type of administrative structure you know whatever and you decide that you are going to be the steward of your child's education. There's not going to be any other institution that you are entrusting with the education of your child. You become the entity that is responsible for delivering that education. Um, the education can be delivered in many ways. You can hire or contract tutors. You can have your kid enrolled in different classes. They can be out of the house all day doing other things. They don't have to be in the home doing their schooling but you are the responsible entity. There is not another school structure that you are outsourcing your child's education to. Um, within that umbrella, so like any anybody who doesn't have their kids inside of traditional school is like technically homeschooling. Um, mm. Under that umbrella, there are lots of different ways to approach 
how you deliver that education for your child. So most people who are more traditionally homeschooling, I use air quotes because, you know, homeschooling hasn't been around that long to have like a deeply entrenched tradition. You can make a pretty solid argument that homeschooling is actually the original way to educate your kids. And the idea that you have this large scale institutional schooling is actually the newer phenomenon, which I think is, I mean, that's true in, in many yeah. regards. Like we didn't have brick and mortar schools for every child to go to for centuries on end. There, there's a, a long tradition of people being the sole individuals responsible for educating their kids. But within the context of living memory, the 20th century of history in the West, like homeschooling is a relatively new renaissance. Um, but like the more, again, quote unquote, traditional m means of homeschooling or approach to homeschooling, um, parents have some sort of structure that in some way, shape or form still follows kind of like the traditional academic trajectory of a child in the West. So you have, you teach your kids the, the three R's, like reading, writing, and arithmetic. You teach them the basic science subjects. You kind of go over like English and grammar, different mathematical, sort of like advanced mathematical concepts. You learn like civics and history. You kind of give your kids the academic structure that would be expected of them if they were going through traditional school. There's a million different ways to deliver it. You can deliver it very formally. I would kind of think of it on a, as, a, as like sort of this like spectrum where on the one extreme, you basically, you've gotten rid of the building part of school and the institutional part of school, but all of the things that you would do inside of the institution remain the same. So you get up and you have like classes at different times and you have these curricula that you're following and it's like very structured and rigid and you're moving your kid through that, but they're doing it from home. Um, like replicating the, exactly. the current system. Exactly. All the way on the other side of the spectrum, you have like full on, it's like totalitarianism to anarchy. So the totalitarian <laughs> version, you're like, you know, everything's very rigid and structured. The anarchistic version is basically what we call unschooling, which is where you don't have structure and rules. You're not sitting your kids down every day and saying, okay, we're going to work on our math homework and we're going to do a grammar worksheet and then we're going to like read a chapter out of this book on history and we're going to talk about it. And like at the end of the week, you're going to write an essay about the things that you've learned. In unschooling, you kind of treat the entire world as the classroom and you teach, you treat your child as the, their own compass for finding the path that they're going to take to learn how to be a competent, self-sufficient entity navigating the adult world by the time they turn 18. So when you're unschooling, again, there's a million and one ways to do this. I'm speaking in very broad brush strokes here. But when you're unschooling, you usually don't have set classes. You usually don't have set school time. The child may be very interested in different topics and you do actually find them more traditional resources to learn things like chemistry or biology or algebra or whatever they're interested in. But if the child wants to spend all day like playing video games and then learning how to code video games and then building their own video games, like they can do that too. So it's very mm. like free form. The child's interests then dictate what it is that the child learns. These are kind of the two extremes on the spectrum. Most homeschoolers fall somewhere in the middle between those two points. They're more like, you know, centrists. They're learning how, like they have a lot less structure than you would have inside of the public schools but they have more structure than just completely leaving their kids to have free reign when they're unschooling. Um, mm. But 
you know, homeschooling is inherently a very individualized thing. So there are a lot of different ways to approach it depending on the personality and temperament of the child, the personality and temperament of the parents, the value set of the parents, the philosophy of the family as a whole, the resources that are available to them, perhaps the community that they are a part of. If you have a whole community of other families that are unschooling, you might be more inclined to like let your kid unschool too, as opposed to if you have a lot of friends who are more traditionally homeschooling, you might lean in that direction. There are tons and tons of variables to how this tends to play out. But I, I think it's helpful to think about it as a sliding scale continuum because then it feels mm. a little bit less like defined and rigid. And it's like, well, which box does this fit in? And it feels a little bit more fluid. I mean, I've watched families go from like one approach of homeschooling to another over the years, depending on what's a fit for their family and their kids. So I think it's helpful to think about it as a fluid thing, but generally unschooling means no structure or very little structure. And then super traditional homeschooling is tons of structure, but most homeschoolers are kind of like somewhere in between those two extremes. Can I ask you a personal question? Oh, please. What do you think? I know you, you disclosed that you, you know, are going to want to be a mother at some point if, if you're so fortunate. Where would you fall in that spectrum when that happens? Are you going to be all the way to the left in the unschooling? Or are you going to be somewhere in the middle? And I'm sure you put a lot of thought into the curriculum that you would want to incorporate. And maybe that's the wrong word choice. But where do you fall? So my own education when I was growing up was kind of in that middle ground. It moved closer to unschooling as I got older in terms of the externally imposed structure. But my own intrinsically imposed structure based on what I cared about actually got like a little bit more structured as I got older because I just really liked academics and I just like sort of like, you know, playing school for lack of a better way of putting it. Like I was doing tons of school, but I liked it to feel like very structured because I just loved learning. I loved academics. Um, but that was, you, you know, I kind of tailored that to me based on my own preferences and my own personality. And I really appreciated having the freedom to be able to do that on my own. Um, I think that some of this does depend on the temperament of the individual children. So I think some of this is a thing that you mm. can't fully, fully map out until you actually like know and understand the children that you're working with. But I'm a really big fan of getting as close to the unschooling approach as you can get, but within a very contained environment. So what I mean mm. by that is like, I'm very, very big on environment design when you're okay. thinking about raising children. And honestly, for adults too. Like when I you know, set up my home, I was thinking about environment design. I was thinking about like, what are the activities that I want to be doing in this space? And what are the sort of invitations that I wanna have in my space on a daily basis? So I want to make sure that I'm stretching a lot. So I'm gonna like have a dedicated space at the edge of my living room for my yoga mat and my stretching supplies so that it's always out and I always see it. And it's just a standing invitation to partake in this activity. I want to be reading a lot, so I'm not going to hide all my books away in my office. I'm going to have lots of them in my living room so that when I'm, you know, walk into my space and I'm thinking about what am I going to do, my books are front and center as an invitation. I know that I want to make myself lots of smoothies, and so I'm going to put like all of the different things that I like to put in my smoothies front and center on the counter instead of hiding them in a cabinet. So when I wake up in the morning and I walk into my kitchen, it's like, oh yeah, I could make a smoothie and put some like flax seeds or some chia seeds or whatever, some turmeric in it. Like it's all right there for me to look at. So I remember that it's an invitation to do the thing that I want to do. Um, it's very James Clear, like <laughs> Atomic Habits, make it easy, right? I mean, that's what yeah. I want. It, 
create that environment. So I like that you said that. Yeah. And, and I think that's even more important for children because they have mm. fewer logical steps that they're following when they're figuring out what it is. Like they're not, a child's not sitting down and going, well, what is going to be most beneficial for my development today? Probably learning some basic, you know, arithmetic skills, but sort of in an embodied sense. So instead of doing math worksheets, I'm going to like play with blocks and I'm going to figure out how different proportions fit inside of this contained space and kind of like work on my spatial awareness. Like a child's not going to sit down and think through logically, this would be good for me today. In the same way that as an adult, I might take the responsibility to say it would be good for me to stretch so that I am less stiff than I would be if I didn't stretch and it's good for my long-term mobility. Like I can rationalize my way through that. A child cannot. Um, and That's so a when fun you... thing for me to think about, pardon me, but mm -hmm. like as a parent, you know, to sit down and um, literally sit down, get on the floor and think about, okay, is this environment, their playroom that I'm creating, have I thought about that spatial awareness of what I should be putting in this environment for them to just naturally want to go play with those blocks or mm -hmm. pick up, you know, this utensil to learn how to write or get these, you know, sandpaper letters or something hot in the house right now. So, you know, whatever that is, uh, but that's something I want to put a pin on. I want to come back to you is creating the right environment, but I'll let you keep going with that thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's environment design is really, really important for children because like children are hardwired to do things. They're hardwired to engage with their environment. They're hardwired to play. And you see this when you watch a child attempt to interact with the world. Usually they interact with the world through the proxy of play. So kids love toys that mirror real life. They love their play kitchens. They love their play cash registers. They can play store. They love playing school, they love toys, like their Barbies, their Playmobiles, or like whatever little figurine type toys they have where they can model out the real world and they can play through scenarios. Children, they love their like toy cars or like toy mechanic equipment or their toy veterinarian equipment, like all of these things that they see adults doing in the real world. Their instinct is to like go play whatever it is that they've observed and figure it out by grappling with like role-playing the scenarios both in a physical embodied sense of like, I'm gonna, I watch mom make dinner and I'm gonna learn how to like assemble ingredients in my play kitchen, like go through all the physical steps of making dinner or whether it's playing out some complex scenario with their Barbies about how, you know, they watched two people interacting through some complex interpersonal scenario and now they're gonna act the whole thing out in like full dramatized fashion because they're trying to like figure out how all of this works. So kids are hardwired to do that and they're going to stay active. So if you give them a space where it's full of invitations for the types of actions that you want them to take, the types of things that you want them to do, you can pretty much give them free reign. You don't have to get a kid up in the morning and go, okay, we're going to do things today. Like a kid's going to do things today, whether you want them to or not. The question is like, what are the invitations in front of them that they can choose to accept? And so if you have a controlled environment that's full of things that you've decided you want your kid to be doing that are going to be beneficial for them, you really don't have to give them a lot of other guardrails. So if you have a space that's full of art supplies, maybe craft supplies, because you want your kid to have a chance to be creative and build things, um, you have a space that has toys that you've decided are beneficial somehow to their development maybe it is developing spatial awareness maybe there's like you know some type of science sciencey toys where they're learning how to like put together electronic circuits or like build complex structures with 
with tinker toys or you know whatever whatever the actions are that you want them to be playing through if you fill a space with all that kinds of stuff you have butterfly nets so they can go out in the backyard and catch bugs you have a mic a little like you know magnifying glass so they can look at the things that they've caught there's notebooks so if they want to draw the things that they saw or write observations about things the things that they saw all of that is there maybe there's a book that you know tells the story of a kid who does go out and collect insects and that can serve as inspiration to fuel their fire or there's like a book that has tons of like you know fun science experiment things that they can poke through and choose things to do out of the book if you create a space that's full of those things and it's lacking the things that you don't want them to do so there is no tv with video game controllers just like you know sitting there taunting them at the side of the room and it's like well you can do this when you finish your work but the child's just constantly like well please can we pull it out and use it um you don't have to have a ton of rules and so i think I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but I think to like bring it home to the question that you originally asked, I think I would be most focused on designing the environment. And then I would be very focused on the temperaments of the individual children, both their interests and also, you know, how much of a self-starter are they? How internally motivated are they? How much do they need encouragement and like maybe some lessons on how to use different things versus how self-directed can they be within the space? And then I would sort of determine the level of freedom based on those temperamental qualities. But I think I would be very deliberate about the, the environment within which my child was growing and then give them as much freedom as possible so that they can develop all of the secondary personality traits and character traits that come with having freedom and responsibility, like knowing how to be a self-starter, knowing how to be self-directed, knowing how to focus for extended periods of time without somebody else coming in and telling you what to do, knowing how to feel responsible. Well, I chose to do this today and then I did it. And like, you know, I chose to paint today and now I have to clean up my paint supplies. Then that's just, you know, a, a symptom of having made the choice to paint today, but I chose the thing. And so I have this sense of responsibility around, like nobody made me do this. I wanted to do it. Like these, you know, deep seated character traits that you really want a child to have going into adulthood. I would I, I think the more you can allow your child to be a self-starter, the more they develop those things too. And that was one of the questions I really wanted to pick your brain about because how do you get them to be that self-starter, to be self-motivated? And what I'm hearing is it's a lot about creating the environment for that mindset to just naturally occur. Um, but it's, you know, so hard and, I, you know, I'm thinking back to our, our playroom right now and my wife and I was, we were driving, we were, we were listening to actually one of your episodes and thinking about environments. We're like, man, we just want to get rid of all those toys, get rid of all the things that we've accumulated and create almost like, you know, the Montessori style of classroom to where they can go and it's, you know, sensory objects or it's, you know, counting jobs or, you know, the, the jobs terminology they use often. Uh, in the Montessori, but you know how how do we best set them up for success? Because we want to create that uh, self-driven curriculum. Like we want them to be able to just play in their room for hours and it not be video games or movies. And I feel like that's something that we just kind of have naturally used the TV over the years and entertainment to help be that third parent in the room when you need that break. But to me, euphoria would be when we could just put them in that room and let them self, you know, direct whatever activities they're curious to do that day and watch them do it and let them guide themselves 
on the processes that they want to take to to grow. And uh, I'm struggling right now personally to like, how do I help create that environment? What should I do? And some of the tips you just mentioned are great, but like anything else that comes to mind to create that self-starter mentality? Yeah, I think, I actually think Montessori schools, I mean, there's, there's, a, like not all Montessori schools are created equal. There's there's a pretty broad spectrum of how Montessori education gets delivered, but a Montessori school that does what they do really well does a really good job of this. So, and I think that there are a couple of things that they get really right. So Montessori schools have the controlled environment for their children. Every classroom is designed with the child at the center. So like everything is child-sized, not adult-sized. The, t- the classroom is not designed to cater to the teacher. It's designed to cater to to the child that the classroom was built for. Um, and so everything inside the classroom is educational. Even the things that are toys are still, like they serve a, a developmental function for the kids. Um, and I think there are a couple of things, you know, like it's it's an environment where there are a set of ground rules like there's there's a way in which the children are expected to use the space there's sort of like a built-in scarcity where there's not enough copies of every toy for every child they have to take turns so there's sort of this implicit value in each item in the classroom because once it's your turn to use it this is your thing but then when you put it away someone else is probably going to use it and if you want to use it but your friend has it you have to wait your turn and so there's there's a scarcity that's built into it. There's also a set of ground rules where, you know, you're allowed to have one thing out at a time and you have a contained space within which you're using it. And it's your space and no one's allowed to bother you. But then when you're finished, you clean it up. And it's like all very, it's not just like this chaotic, you can pull every toy off the shelf and make it a huge mess out of it. And then, you know, later on, you have to clean up the entire playroom because you pulled everything out. Um, you have much more structure than that often. Um, But also there's, because the things inside the classroom are educational, there's a way in which you use them. Like there's a correct way to use each one of these toys. And so each toy, the first time you use it is accompanied by a lesson where you sit down with a guide, which is what Montessorians call teachers and they explain to you how you use this tool. And then once you've gotten the lesson, you get to use it as many times as you want. But there's sort of this like structure at the beginning where you learn how to use the thing. And I don't think that that's necessary inside of a home playroom. I don't think that's necessary for every toy. It's not like you have to get, you know, give your kid Legos and then you give them a lesson where you show them how to build a Lego house. But also you could sit down with them and say, hey, look, I'm going to show you like, how to do this other thing with Legos. I'm going to show you how to construct, you know, a right angle corner where you have all these stacking bricks and like that's what you use to make structures. And you like show them how to use a toy in a way that they maybe haven't considered before. So you can, there are applications where that's helpful, but I think some of the things that you're putting inside of a space perhaps do warrant having some lessons come along with them at the beginning, especially like art supplies and science supplies and things like that. You can give your kids a little bit of, you know, you're kind of like you're letting them in on a secret. It's like, ooh, let me show you. I'm going to show you like something really cool that you can do with colored pencils. Would you like to see? And then you can show them how you can like blend two colors together to sort of create this gradient between like red and blue where there's purple in the middle. Um, 
or you might show them like different ways of it's like yeah you can color like you can push really hard and the color is darker or you can like push a little lighter and the color a little softer the color is lighter like, you can show them different things and kind of like let them in on like secrets and make them really excited that you're showing them something new and you're sort of adding to their arsenal and then they're going to want to sit down and you know play with these things and learn how to do them and experiment with them um but i think having some some agreed upon ground rules for how a space is interacted with can be really helpful to sort of add a little bit of order, order to, to counteract the chaos of just childhood exuberance. Um, and also I think, you know, like you said, it's really easy to rely on external stimuli to keep a child entertained but it's really helpful to build their muscle over time to focus. So boredom is uncomfortable, but it's definitely not a thing to be afraid of. Kids can get real punchy when they're bored, but you also can just tell them, you know, look, if you're bored, you can help me with the dishes. If you're bored, you can help me clean this thing up. And they're not going to want to do that. And then you can say, okay, well, then find something to do. And if you allow the child to build a little bit of a muscle to sit through boredom and find something to do, they're going to develop a capacity pretty quickly to entertain themselves through boredom or like via boredom. Like boredom almost becomes the trigger that then leads to innovation, creativity, learning something new because they don't want to be bored, but just sitting down in front of the TV isn't an option. So they have to entertain themselves and they start to build a muscle for how to do that. Um, but also, you know, when you're doing concept. something with your kids, choosing activities that that encourage longer term focus, like reading chapter books together when your child is old enough for that to be developmentally appropriate. And, you know, what age is that to you? It kind of depends on the kid. Um, OK, <laughs> you know, it, it definitely depends on the kid and their 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 level of understanding and also the content material, too. Um but sitting down with a kid and like having them over the course of days follow a narrative arc of like a short chapter book and mm. understanding how like different pieces of a narrative over an extended period of time fit together is going to help them develop their longer term capacity to focus um, on a singular thing, which is helpful. But also there's also like a modeling component too, where if you sit down with your kid and you do a thing with them and you kind of like teach them how to do it, or you even model the behaviors that you want your kid to have. So like, if you want to raise readers, you probably have to read some too. Like you have to show your kid what it looks like to be reading so that they understand yeah. what this looks like from the outside. And it's a behavior that they want to copy because your kids don't want anything more than to copy you most of the time. Um, yeah. I love that concept of like your kids will do what you do before they do what you say. Oh yeah. Right. And and you mentioned it earlier with the, the yoga mats and stretching. And it's like they know that mommy and daddy go to the gym, but they're not there with us. They don't see us working out when we leave to go there. And so now I'm like, well, why don't I just do it at home, at least more often when they're present? So that way they can see it. And it led to like such a fun afternoon of like my daughter trying yoga and she's teaching me a couple like moves that she's learned. And then she's like, well, let's try to find more. And then we get on you know, YouTube and then it's like, okay, children led yoga you know, classes. And then, you know, each one she's trying to do now. And like at home, she'll start practicing them on her own. I'm like, man, this is what it's about. Mm -hmm. Like, this is what I need to create is that environment. Uh, I like how you put it though, the boredom and that muscle 
because focus is something that I do worry about uh, and making sure that they can have long periods of focus. So you talked about reading, you know, chapter books. I guess this is tactical to, uh, you know, the fault, but like any that come to mind first, like I've got a four-year-old, any that you can say, oh, these are ones that I would recommend or does it really matter? You said books. Sorry, you cut out for just a moment. Yeah. Any like uh, chapter books for a four-year-old girl that you think would be smart to start to read? You know, is it the Harry Potter? Is that too soon? Is it... Uh, any you know, chronicles of Narnia or anything that come to mind? Man, this is a brain jog. It's been a while since I've thought about this one. I'm trying to remember. So I'm trying to remember books that I remember really loving when I was pretty small or that I remember my younger sister loving when she was really small because I was a little older then and I would have remembered. I remember... I don't remember the ages that these books were read, but there's a few that like, I remember like being pretty little and really enjoying. Um, Astrid Lindgren, who's a Swedish author, has some phenomenal, phenomenal kids books. She has a series called the Pippi Longstocking books that are really great. And there's another one called The Children of Noisy Village. That's just this like wonderful little, like series of like little vignettes about these kids who <laughs> excuse me these kids who grew up in three adjacent houses and who all like get in all these they have all these adventures together um really great books um what else i remember loving the boxcar children when i was little um i have to think about this for a minute like there's there are the obvious ones that aren't fully chapter books but they're series of stories like Amelia Bedelia and Frog and Toad that are like series of stories where you're seeing the same characters again and again that are also kind of designed to be early readers for kids. Um, So like as your child becomes more and more familiar with the plot and the characters and it becomes a little bit easier for them to also kind of predictively follow where the plot's going to go. They're books that are designed to be easier for early readers to to read themselves. I have to think about this, though. I know I have a list somewhere, but it's been so long since this has been a thing I've been actively doing that they're not always like top of mind when I'm sitting down to think about book recommendations. Yeah, you usually probably ask what book should we be reading as adults. Or, <laughs> Actually, I do you know, get asked that about, more frequently, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I will. I, well, let's pivot. What do you think is, you know, knowing what I'm interested in. So a couple, the most recent read that I had was Mindset by Carol Dweck. Uh, and I loved that, like, fixed mindset, growth mindset, and really want to try to teach that to uh, my girls from an early age. And just like the way that we talk, you know, the the phrases that we use to try to instill that. So that's top of mind for me. But yeah, any that you recommend as far as helping develop, you know, young, early age children? Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, Montessori is definitely worth reading. Maria Montessori is, is great. Um, She's really good on early developmental, like early childhood development. There's another really great book called The Intellectual Lives of Children by Susan Engel that I highly recommend. It's a really great overview just of like how a child develops psychologically, how their thinking capacity develops. And it's it's very enlightening. I think it's a great book. Um, 
This isn't directly related to early childhood psychology, but one of my favorite recommendations is Don't Tell Me I Can't, which is the autobiography of Cole Summers, who was a 14-year-old unschooler and wrote a book on his experience. And every parent on the planet needs to read that book because it will completely redefine what you think is possible for a child to accomplish. Um, Wow, mm -hmm. that is literally... I was listening to a podcast this weekend. Mm -hmm. Uh, My First Million, I think is what it's called. But anyways, they brought up that exact book. And they talk about that child who came from what is nothing, mm-hmm. right? Like literally nothing and uh, being able to unschool himself and, you know, figure out tax strategies like 10 or 12 or whatever. And, you know, whatever he needed to do, he, f- he just went and figured it out and, and unschooled himself. So interesting that you bring that up. I'll definitely add that to the queue. That's a good one. I also would re- recommend um, there's a great early childhood psychologist. Uh, actually, she's a psychotherapist, but she works with. She works with children. Her name's Naomi Fisher. Um, I've had her. I've had her on my podcast. Um, she's really, really great. Uh, but she wrote a book called "Changing Our Minds" about the psychology of kids interacting with school. And that's also a book. I think every parent should read that book because it's just incredibly enlightening, and it just gives you a, it like opens a window into what's going on psychologically with children both throughout their development but also as they're interacting with the school system and some of the impacts and repercussions that as a parent you might not be aware of also this is the last recommendation i promise but dumbing us down by john taylor gatto i should have mentioned this at the beginning this is just like one of the education classics every parent should read this one too super easy to get through but it's going to completely change your the way you think about what school is doing to our kids Okay, that one's also one that was recommended to me very recently and and need to add it. I I think he has multiple books that people have recommended. But um, yeah, I did listen to that episode with Dr. Naomi Fisher that you had on. And it was just interesting to hear her concept of like moving or relocating for the right education system. Uh, Maybe we could talk about that for a second. I mean, what was your takeaways there? And is that you know, a little bit too extreme. I've had this vision of how cool would this be to just go around before my daughter becomes of age. I don't even know if that's right, but like I think about kindergarten ages and like to go take an RV and let's just travel around America and just find all of these different educational leaders and hear how they're doing it, sit in, see what works, and then take that back and mold our version of what that school should look like. Uh, but how did you take away from her as, as far as that concept of moving or relocating for education? Yeah, I mean, she's a great example of it. I've talked to lots of people who've relocated for different education options. I actually find it interesting that it's not more common than it is. I think, I, I wonder if as the sort of broad cultural sentiments around education change, if this perhaps will become something that's a little more common. Um, but it's not it's not uncommon for families to i mean you mentioned this yourself like you know factoring in the school district the quality of the school district when choosing where to move to people do this all the time for public school i expect it will become more common to do for alternative forms of education as different types of alternative schools start to emerge um but i think you know when you when you think about things to be moving for a job is a very common thing to move for uh it makes sense because it's a pivotal thing in the trajectory of your career where you're working you're going to move for a great opportunity 
And that's important and it's worth doing because it has a major impact on your overall life trajectory to have a great job. But a school is the same thing. A ch- have going to a good school and having your child immerse in a great education experience is formative for everything that comes after. So it's also mission critical for your life trajectory. And so relocating to a place where there's a great school that you want your children to attend, as long as you have the flexibility with how you're working, I think is going to become a lot more common. I hope it's going to become a lot more common because it's just as important for the life trajectory as the job is. And I think it's much easier, like, you know, the job feels much more cut and dry and it's much more culturally acceptable to move for a job as opposed to a school. But why not relocate for a school if you have the professional capacity and flexibility to do so? Um, Like, as long as you can move your work to a different place. But I think, you know... People also, there's all different ways that people who are already nomadic and moving around and are kind of on like a different cultural trajectory also do this. Like world schooling is a topic, is like a subject area that I find absolutely fascinating where people are like nomading around the globe and educating their kids. And there are schools that are being built mostly online specifically to cater to families who are living this lifestyle. There's like a whole subgroup of homeschoolers that call themselves world schoolers and like the travel component is a huge part of what they do. So there's a ton here to unpack. Um, The like geographical component of education is very interesting to me because it's in some ways a lot less important now that online school and online resources are so easy to access. But at the same time, like people are freer to move around, especially with remote work and stuff. And so there's all different types of manifestations that you start to see of people embracing geographic freedom with the education choices that they make. And you see some really cool stuff to start to emerge. Man, I've got so many questions off of that because yeah, I didn't even realize it was a trend, uh, but to hear that, you know, more and more people are thinking about it and you know, I've got two quick thoughts and I'll end with a question on it, but I think it was in that podcast as well that she talked about, or maybe it was you, you know, we are so um, accustomed to living to work right? As a society, like that is a part of our identity and we have to, you know, we're willing to make sacrifices for our careers, for, you know, what we think is going to be the best uh, situation for our families. But why aren't we living to educate our next generation? Because to me, that's really where the unlock is going to be as far as value for your family. I mean, to be able to give your children the best opportunities to be successful, like that's really where the the unlock is going to become. And if you do put them as your North Star, as you mentioned earlier, like so many magical things could probably happen, but it's hard. It's hard to think, well, maybe I could take this pay cut to go give my child this opportunity. Um, but, you know, we're saving in our 529s anyways. We're making sure that we're taking that job to make the money, to be able to educate them 18 years down the road. But what I'm learning is the more that I'm studying is, man, those first zero to three years are so important and three to five to seven, you know, it's just like, why aren't we investing in that now? Why wait until later? Um, so my question is, are any of those schools that you're seeing ones that maybe have caught your eye more than others that you think people should move for? Uh, because you look at the, you know, Jeff Bezos, he's creating his own school. You look at Elon Musk, he created his own school for his kids. You know, I've seen this synthesis is, you know, one that has popped up that I'm kind of currently researching. And I've been a part of, you know, Matt Pedro's program and Apogee schools. And there's the Acton Academies. You know, there's so many different things that we have now. Which ones have you seen or studied that you think, if you can find your way to get close to this, 
you're probably gonna be setting your kid up for a lot of success later. I mean, this is such a complicated question because there are so many incredible schools out there. Um, I'm actually, this is a little bit tangential to your question, but I'm actually really excited about the micro school movement. Um, basically think like a one room schoolhouse, but for the 21st century. So you have a small school, often it's hosted in a church or a library or someone's living room. Like it doesn't even necessarily need its own dedicated building because it is so small. And it's a single teacher with a mixed age classroom. And it could be anything from like a small pod of like five or six kids all the way through to like, you know, 10 or 15 kids in a single class. And they can each independently do their own work so that they can, you know, each child can be doing math at whatever level they're at and reading at whatever level they're at. But they're all sort of being stewarded by a singular teacher within the space. Um, it's a really cool model. And you see them, they see them start to crop up in with all different types of areas of focus. So you can get like a really bespoke level of education pretty quickly. So there are micro schools that are being built as like, creative labs for like artistic kids um there's a chain of them in colorado that are building themselves around being like the ultimate micro school for a mountain ski town like what is the culture of a mountain ski town and like some of the cool things maybe in the infrastructure of like what exists in the economy of a of a mountain ski town and like the seasonality of it and even like the ecology of being in the mountains in the Rockies, the kids can be learning about as part of like their science and their history. Um, like the whole thing is tailored around being the dream school for kids in this very particular type of ecosystem that doesn't exist anywhere else in the country. And kids are growing in a, in a school that's tailored specifically to that environment. Um, so you start to see all these different, like there are micro schools that are intended to be you know, they're intended to be like incubators for kids who want to be entrepreneurial and go build something. Um, so there's, there's so much stuff like that out there where if you're, you have a kid that has a particular set of interests or proclivities, you can start getting pretty granular looking for options that map onto that kid. Um, there are a few particular projects that I'm really excited about though. There's this really, really cool company called Moonrise that's basically a co-working space for kids. It's in Atlanta, Georgia. They just have one location right now that they're looking to start expanding soon. But it's basically like a WeWork, but for kids. And you have a membership and you can show up whenever it's open and your parents can leave their kids there and the kids can independently work on their schoolwork and the kids are all going through like different types of programs and like, you know, they're not all working on the same thing, but they can come to the space, they can play. Um, it's sort of like solving for Child, the child care component of school, which is one of the big things that makes education is not the only function that public school serves, like not even uh, a little totally. bit. And child care really is daycare, one of the big yeah. ones. So this is addressing the child care side of things. Um, I'm really excited to see Moonrise grow. I think I think what they're building is going to be really cool. Um, there's a really great network of Montessori schools that go all the way through middle and high school, which is more unusual. Usually Montessori is more like zero through six, but these, this network, it's um, the guidepost schools for the elementary and middle, or sorry, for the like preschool through elementary. And then their middle and high schools is the same organization, but they have a different name for the middle and high schools. It's called the Academy of Thought and Industry. Um, 
They're located all across the country. They're a phenomenal network. I've had um, one of their co-founders on the podcast a couple times, actually, Matt Bateman, because I just think like the, the philosophy around the work that they do is just so incredible. Um, but they're a great network of schools to be looking at and perhaps relocating for. Um, you know, there's, there's tons and tons of stuff like that. But I also think it's worth noting that, you know, for some kids being in person is really important. Um, but not every kid's temperament requires that. And there also are some really, really amazing virtual programs. There's a great online school called the Socratic Experience that's being run by my friend, Michael Strong, who I've also had on the podcast. Um, and it's uh, for, I think, second graders. I forget if they start in first or second grade, um, but all the way through high school. And it's built around, like it's, it's very heavily Montessori influenced, but it's built around Socratic discussion. So the kids read things and then they, they talk about them. They discuss, they grapple with navigating the world together by having these open-ended conversations about the materials that they're reading and big ideas that they're exploring, but also just life. And I think that's really, really cool. Um, there's another online program called the Knowledge Society or TKS, where kids are learning like entrepreneurial skills. There are boot camps where kids can like go online and build their first startup. Like there's all kinds of stuff like that that kids can tap into. So opportunities are endless. There's, there's so yeah, there's so much. I, I post about a lot of this stuff on Twitter for people who really want to go down the rabbit hole. I have a tons of stuff saved there. Um, but yeah, there's, there's so much. And I really think there's, there are so many other people out there that I talk to that also wants to build programs that I really think we're just at the beginning of seeing innovative models start to emerge. Yeah. I think that micro school concept is what my wife and I are most probably excited about or thinking is we'd love to be able to create an environment and we're very much into like the health and wellness aspect and the food is like nourishment and the way that you fuel your body and you know the importance of understanding where your food comes from and you know how to create that food and grow it and raise it you know I'm not a farmer by any means but I grew up around a lot of them and so that's always been a part of you know my life but um, one that I want to help instill in you know next generation be fun to create like a little co-op around like a barn and have chickens and cows and like things out in the area that they can learn and grow with and I know there's a lot of schools doing that kind of like forest or outdoorsy style of this micro schooling so Something very top of mind. Man, I've got so many questions I want to ask you, but you mentioned Twitter uh, or X, as we should call it nowadays. And uh, in closing, I'd love to just learn a little bit. How did you grow your brand? Maybe tell the audience a little bit about Rebel Educator if they're not familiar, because uh, it is awesome. And it is something that they all need to check out, especially if this episode interests them. Uh, and selfishly, I'll ask at the end of that, maybe advice for me, because I want to go in a little bit deeper onto it to build the brand, because I think that there is an opportunity there, especially for you know fathers in my age group that are trying to be better dads. And I know there's opportunity and a culture and a community there, dad Twitter, as I've heard it called. Um, and so any advice you have to grow in uh, my personal brand on there, but uh, how'd you grow yours first? Yeah, well, I've been at this for a while and I tweet a lot. So anybody who <laughs> follows me knows um, both my personal account and Rebel Educator knows that I'm, I spend a lot on t of time on Twitter writing spicy, spicy takes. You can kind of tell based on like the times of day that I usually post, like when I have my peak sort of uh, I don't know, dissent against the system, like inspirational, like, oh, I know how to like phrase this in a new way. Like when I have epiphanies thinking about education, you can kind of tell like 
the cyclical rhythms of my day when I have these spikes of sassiness and I go on Twitter and I start, you know, saying stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, we can talk for, we could talk for hours and hours and hours about like Twitter is an entire, it's an art, it's a science. Like it's a very complicated beast. Um, the algorithm is very complex and nobody fully understands it. But if you want to grow, you start to like really kind of just like study the mechanics and sort of the laws of the universe of the platform that you're, you're on. Cause there are tons of people who have loads of amazing content and don't really grow on the platform. There are also people who grow to have huge followings and you read their content. And you're like, I don't really get it. Like, I don't know why, I don't know why this account is huge. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of complexity to it. It's not always like a flat out meritocracy just based on ideas. Um, but you know, I just spent a lot of time, like I was really committed to like, I knew that I had a lot to say and that Twitter was a platform that I wanted to say it on because of the types of people that hang out there. Um, like I probably could reach more moms on Facebook, but I don't like Facebook. It's not, I don't, I don't enjoy using it. It's not a platform that I like. Yeah, it was not, it was not the format for me. Um, and I just decided that, you know, I want to be on a platform where the thinkers and the other like individuals and builders that I respect hang out. And that was Twitter. So I went in like, I was like, okay, I'm gonna learn everything I can about this platform. So I spent tons of time studying accounts that I admired and like watching what what they do, talking to people who'd grown Twitter accounts and like learning from them. Uh, I sank a lot of hours into this project. Um, and you kind of realize over time that like, you can have great takes, but that's not always the only thing that's required to, to get people's attention. You also kind of have to figure out the format of those takes. Um, you have to figure out like, you know, actually like maybe you're better off writing threads because sometimes those perform better in terms of like, if you have a lot of useful content, people are going to share it. And when people share it, that's how you get fresh eyes on the content that you're putting out into the world. Um, so you kind of learn over time how to think about some of these things. Um, but it's also, you know, like, I think it's really easy to just go on Twitter and just start, you know, like shouting into the void and just hoping that the right people hear you. And it's, it's a network. And I think that's really important to remember. It's a conversation, but it's a network of people having conversations. So the more you start to kind of find the conversations that are already happening that feel relevant to the things you want to talk about and the people you want to talk to and the impact that you want to have on the world, like this would probably be you know, to your question, like, what, what can you do? You're already aware that dad Twitter exists. And there's a lot of great people engaging on dad Twitter already. Um, like you want to think of yourself as part of that world. And being part of that world doesn't just mean being a content creator. It also means engaging in existing content. So you want to be tweeting organically, but then you also want to be going into the other people's comments and leaving thoughtful comments and insights and additions to posts that they're already making. Um, you don't just want to say like, that's great. Thumbs up. Because then, you know, that's not helpful at all. <laughs> but you want to go, um, you want to go and like leave thoughtful comments that are going to be useful to people and thinking about how to like, you know, if, if someone's leaving a thought about how they, like they're leaving a tweet about how they thought about navigating interaction with their child that day, maybe you come in with another insight about like, oh, when my kid had this problem, like we did this. Like you, you offer something useful to the conversation and then people come back and, and to you and that's kind of how they find you. Brian, when is this episode go live? Because I may, I may have some specific things depending on like the timing of this. 
Well, honestly, when you think is the best. Uh, so if there's timing that you think we should talk about, for me, I was planning to do it within the next two to three weeks. Okay. But, um, you know, I, being a part of that Twitter ecosystem is definitely something that I want to get into. So if you had advice there and, and when this should air to help maximize that, obviously definitely want to listen. Well, depending on the timing. So I'm actually, the reason I bring this up is I'm actually teaching a course on this in February um, that may be of, of interest to you. It's with the Objective Standard Institute. I've taught a few different courses with them. Um, more awesome. on like the entrepreneurship side of things, but this time around I'm doing a course on building social media brands. So it's going to be uh, every Monday in February. And hang on, I'm trying to see, I'm trying to pull up really quickly the like information to find it so I can just like tell people very simply uh, how to... Um, okay, here we go. So if you go to the objectivestandard.org, um, you'll see... Uh, drop down for courses. And if you click on all courses, mine should be one of the ones that pops up. Um, it's called how to build a social media brand. And I'm just going to be doing like a four week deep dive into how to think about social media. So this may be of interest to you. Um, it may also, I'm not like they, they're very generous with like scholarships and stuff for this. I'm not sharing this as like a plug to like, I don't get any kickbacks depending on like, if you sell so many seats, you get like, so like there, there's, there's none of that. Um, it's just oh, like this looks it awesome. might be of interest so it might it might this might be a helpful thing for you to check out i'm going to like share it here while we're live because if there are other people listening who are also interested in social media it may be of interest to them as well all right i'm on the objectivestandard.com remind me where do i oh, go from objectivestandard.org oh um, okay then um, and then you'll see the top menu there's like a few different drop downs and if you click on courses and just go to all courses, it should be one of the first ones that pops up. Well, I'll definitely link that here in the show notes too, because yeah, I'd love to take the course and learn from you. I mean, what you've been able to do, you're up to what, 129,000 followers on Twitter on just the Rebel Educator. I'm not sure how much you have on the other, but uh, very impressive stuff. And it also makes me think every time I read it, it's uh, something that's like, oh, I need to maybe incorporate that a little bit more. You talk about the hot takes though, and you had posted about that fairly recently, maybe a good closing segment. Cause I know we got to be respectful of time, but if you've got a hop, we can, you know, wrap it up here. But what's, uh, what's been the hottest take that you've had maybe about the education system? What, what got the biggest response? <laughs> um, there is no singular thing that got the biggest response. Uh, there are a few things. Whenever I talk about de-schooling, the idea of like undoing the damage of the school system, that tends to really resonate with people. Um, whenever I get into like, are you sure your kid needs ADHD medicine or is it actually that the system's the problem? That always really blows up. People get real fiery about that one in both directions. People are like, yes, I can't believe the system is doing this. And then simultaneously, like, they're like, you know, don't, don't diminish my, my ADHD like that. Like it's a very, that one's always a really hot take. Um, I mean, honestly, people are really receptive to like data-driven criticisms of the education system. So if I can get into like raw numbers about how the system is, is flawed and, and the abysmal outcomes in terms of test scores and literacy rates and all those sorts of things, um, those tend to really do well. And then sometimes I'll have a random one about homeschooling that really blows up too. the homeschooling ones like, if you if you hit the right the right nerve on Twitter, uh, people get real upset at you for for 
defending homeschooling, but at the same time, there's such a huge movement of people who are pro homeschooling that it can really pick up a lot of traction. Um, there, there's not there's not one singular topic though. Education is just it's just like you're walking through a minefield of things that people have strong opinions about. So it's really not that hard to hit a nerve. Is there any stat that you think about that comes to mind just off the top of your head? The first one that's like most impactful about whether it's homeschooling <laughs> or ADHD. I mean, anything like what comes yeah. to mind first that you think people should be more aware of? The, the one that I, I probably cite the most because I, I, I find it the most shocking. Um, 54% of adult Americans cannot read at a sixth grade level. 54% of Americans between the ages of 16 and 74 cannot read at a sixth grade level. That's crazy. I mean, that definitely is mind blowing. According to the United States Department of Education, like they're not even hiding it. I mean, isn't that right there at least enough to have you question? Is that the right place to send your children? You know, it's like... I'm not saying all those went there, but um, <laughs> it's got to at least make you wonder mm -hmm. just a little bit. And that's what I think COVID did better than anything, unfortunately, is like made us rethink uh, and question the norms that have just been, that's just how we do things. That's just the way they're done. Mm -hmm. and I think education is the most recent one for us. But yeah, it's one that's it's definitely top of mind. What, any fun stats about homeschooling? <sighs> I mean, homeschooling is the fastest growing modality of education of any modality of education. There's a great graphic. I don't remember the specific numbers, but I've tweeted this a couple of times where public school attendance is dropping off and then other types of private school attendance are like slowly growing and then homeschooling just this huge spike. Um, it's growing way faster, I mean, really than like anything else, everything else combined. Yeah, well, it's definitely one that I'm thinking about a lot. Um... This has been awesome. Seriously, Hannah, thank you so much for coming on today, like getting to learn from you. There's so many questions. I'd love to have maybe a part two at some point, uh, but you know, this was a good starting off and I'll definitely see you on this, how to build a social media brand with Hannah Frankman on OSI. So uh, plan to see a little bit more of you, uh, but thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. It's been a wealth of knowledge for me. Oh yeah, my, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this has been super fun. Best of luck to you on your education journey with your kids. Oh, thank you. Everybody knows I'm going to need it, especially I'm supposed to be the one teaching them. So, uh, well, appreciate you and uh, have a great rest of the day. You too. And that's a wrap for this episode, but really just the beginning for me as I think further on this topic at home with my wife and after sitting down with Hannah, I've got a lot of research to do to figure out what's best for us as quote-unquote school age is quickly approaching. And if you'd like to hear more from Hannah, please give her a follow on X, both at Hannah Frankman and her other handle that was mentioned earlier, Rebel Educator. Uh, no spaces, all one word. You can also check out the course, which I'll be doing personally coming up here in February at objectivestandard.org. And uh, can't wait to learn more. This was just the starting point for me. So if you like the show, it would fire me up for you to share this episode with a friend, uh, a parent, and anybody uh, that's maybe thinking about these topics now. Uh, and please write a review. Tell me what you thought. Also, let me know uh, future topics, areas of interest. would love to dive deep in those as well. So thanks again for tuning in. Now go be great and go fitfo some shit out. <laughs>